Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Oh, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, We're in our Luke series, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. That's where we're going to be, Luke 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're actually about to enter a section of Luke that's pretty interesting. Uh, As I was reading through chapter 8, and I believe it goes into chapter 9, just right up to chapter 9, where we kind of enter this, um, what I'm calling the power section, (laughs) Because there's all these powerful things that Jesus does. There's uh, Jesus having power over nature. We're going to read about that today. Um, Jesus having power over the demonic. That's next week. Uh, Jesus having power over sickness and even death. And so there's these three kind of stories that we're about to enter that are all about power. So uh, Luke 8 uh, is where we're going to be. Verse 22. And when you're there, let's stand for the reading of Scripture. All right, Luke 8, verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Let's pray together before we jump into things. God, if it is just up to me and my words, this is a meaningless exercise, but if it is by your spirit and your presence that you communicate, then we will be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is this that even the winds and the waters obey him? Now, when I first saw that this was the passage for this week, I was a little overwhelmed, to be honest. Because how do you approach a text like this? Such a famous and powerful story, probably a story that people even outside of the church, maybe even never been to church, know that Jesus did this. And it's, it's a story that's inspired some of the world's most beautiful pieces of art. It's just, it's everywhere. In fact, here's one from Rembrandt. I believe this one was actually stolen from a gallery in Boston. There's a whole Netflix documentary about it. But uh, here, here is, here's what it might have looked like, or at least through Rembrandt's uh, imagination, of the boat being swamped. A, a true perilous situation, imminent death, right? So I, I, as I, when, I, when I had this passage, I thought to myself, you know, how do you, 
how do you give like 30 minutes on this passage and do it justice? Because let me just show you the myriad of ways that someone might draw meaning out of this passage. Here's the different ways you could approach this. You could approach this passage with a literal interpretation. And the literal, literal interpretation from this would be, God will change the weather today. So we should all get together if we don't like the weather, and we should start praying because maybe he, he, he'll make Oregon like Southern California if we just keep praying. Uh, maybe he'll do that. Um, the second way you could approach it is, is in, in an allegorical sense, uh, which is God will calm the storms of your life. Just like he calmed the weather, he'll take those storms of your life, and specifically in a modern sense, the mental and emotional storms of your life, and he'll bring calm to them. Probably many of us have read it that way. Uh, there's also a biblical theological way of reading this, which is this. What has God's relationship with nature been throughout the Bible? And specifically, what has his relationship been to storms? And how is Jesus interacting? with it here. What could that mean? And we, so we, we go through the Bible and we build a, somewhat of a biblical theology, like what exactly is going on here? Or, or lastly, there's a socio-cultural uh, kind of level to this passage. And this is something that I, I uh, discovered as I was reading this week. In a cultural sense, some think that this was Luke's way of connecting to a Greek audience. He wanted Greeks to read his gospel because they would have had a literary motif in their culture of a God who helps sailors to safe passage. And so there's a, Luke would have been kind of been doing this kind of judo move of like, hey, you guys have this motif? Well, guess what? There's the real guy is Jesus. You need to worship and follow Jesus. Now, all of these ways of, inter you're like, I didn't realize there were so many ways of interpret interpreting the text. Yes, we are all doing interpretation all the time, and there's more lenses than just this, but we're that we're constantly applying to uh, Scripture. Now, all of these are valid and probably do their own sermon, but I have one question this morning. Why does this story matter to you today? Because in, in one sense, you'd read it and go, well, I'm really happy that Jesus was in the boat for the disciples' sake. Like, good for them, they needed it, uh, cool story. You know, maybe the story's there because it's like, you know, Jesus is, is getting validated as God. Look, he's the creator. He even can control weather and the creation. He's God. You know, I, I think that could be the reason why the story is here. But I think there's more. I think there's more to it. See, the point of this passage is this. Who do you trust who do you trust? See, what is faith? You know, he asked this question, you know, where is your faith? And I, I, to be honest, if I'm in that boat, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really thinking about faith. I'm more thinking about like how long I can tread water, right? Like faith doesn't really enter into the picture. But so, so what is faith? You know, when Jesus asks, where is your faith? He isn't asking, what sort of ideas do you believe? He's asking, who do you trust? Who? Who have you rolled the weight of your life upon? I've used this example before, but you know, imagine yourself laying on your bed and you're on one side of the bed and you roll yourself all the way over to the edge of the bed and then you roll yourself off the bed. That's what you're doing with your life when it comes to God. You are, you're saying, I could build my own bed of rest. I could build my own bed of success. I could build my own bed of importance and purpose, but I, it's gotten me nowhere. And so I will roll the very weight of my life onto you. That's faith. That's trust. 
Because if you, and here's what I want to say this morning, if you have done that, if you have rolled the weight of your life, if you've really rolled onto him, there is no storm that you won't be able to sleep through. I've heard it said, and I love this, this quote, I've heard it said, you only have authority in the storm that you can sleep through. You only have authority in the storm you can sleep through because if you go through life's storms and you, and you can't sleep through it, you have no peace, you're going to get chaotic. Things are going to get hectic. You're going to go from this to that to this to that, trying to control, trying to control. But I want to say this morning that those who trust the most are the most at peace in life's storms. Those who trust God the most are the most at peace in life's storms. Your peace in the middle of a storm, whatever it is, relational or physical or emotional, your peace in the middle of chaos is evidence of trust in God. And when you trust, when you really trust him, you will find yourself calming storms around you as well. So this morning I want to talk about trust. Because if you had to, you know, you might be sitting there thinking like, how redundant. You know, we always talk about trust. Well, let me just say this. If you had to boil the entire Bible down to one single idea, I believe it would be trust God. All of the Bible, all of this, everything in it is trying to get you in one direction, and it is in the direction of trusting God. Here is a, a library of meditations and tellings and songs and correspondence that are all centered around humans interacting with the divine. And the question that will influence all areas of your life, the question the whole Bible is attempting to give you an answer to is, are you safe with God? Are you safe with God? All of the decisions of your life will essentially be made from that, from how you answer that question. Are you safe with God when the storm comes, whether it's a, it's a health problem? Maybe it's an emotional issue. Something from your past just keeps nagging at you. Maybe it's some kind of difficulty in your career. Maybe you've experienced some level of loss. The singular question for all of it is, do you trust God. Or maybe more specifically, because I keep saying that and you're like, uh, I think I do. Well, maybe more specifically, do you view the issues of this life through the lens of God's ability? Or do you view God through the lens of the trials that you go through? What has precedent? That's really the question. When you face a problem, do you view the problem through the lens of God's ability, what you know to be true about him, what you've seen through testimony? Or do you view God through the lens of experience, the lens of the trials of this life? Here's a bit of a test that I, I found myself running you know, with myself this week. What gets bigger in your life when trouble comes? What gets bigger? Your view of God's ability or the problem? Because I don't know if you know this, but whenever you go through a trial, you're going to amplify something. You're going to amplify something. Either you will see the issue, the pain, the loss, whatever it is, and it will be like a tsunami that is heading for the beach of your life, and you will begin to panic. And you'll try to get somebody to look at it just to validate how big it is. And you're going to, so you'll, you'll, you'll say, wow, it is so big. 
It's look at how bad this is. I think I'm going to die because of how bad this thing is that's coming for me. Will somebody please just validate this is really bad? Or we do the opposite and we say, the one, and this is difficult, but I hope, I'm hopefully going to teach you how to do this this morning. The one who is in my boat is more powerful than any storm. And if resurrection is possible, and I already died in baptism, then bring it on. I have eternity in mind. I'm not living just this mortal life. I have eternity in view. See, I think that's what it means to magnify the Lord. You, you see, all throughout the scriptures, there's this kind of constant, repeated refrain, magnify the Lord, magnify the Lord. You're like, how can I make God bigger than he already is? What it means to magnify the Lord is that you recognize him and his size in comparison to the issues of this life accurately. So that when trouble comes, you've, spent, you've had a lifetime of magnifying him so that when trouble comes, you have the correct view of him in comparison to the things that you are going through. If you haven't magnified him, if you haven't spent time magn- looking at him, gazing at him, seeing the contours of his character, if you haven't done that, then trust will be very, very difficult. But if you have spent time considering him, reminding yourself of testimony, you know, we just had, um, a, there was a wonderful meeting that was uh, uh, celebrating Mariah. Um, she's one of our, our missionaries from uh, St. Hill. She's here this summer. Um, we love you, Mariah. Uh, she had a wonderful gathering at Mike and Barbie's house. And uh, I think Emily was trying to hang out with like Becky afterwards or something like that. Or I don't know who. You we were trying to hang out with somebody who was there, Abby. And uh, uh, Abby's like, I don't think I'm going to make it tonight because it went so late. People were getting healed. God's power was on display, moving, touching people's lives. And you just remind yourself of that. And it, it magnifies the Lord. It gives you the correct view. If my God can do that, then what I'm facing is nothing. If resurrection is possible, then I'm not afraid to die. And so you get the correct view of things. And this is really what, uh, this is really what Luke is doing here. Is he, he adds this in in verse 25. Look back down at your Bibles. Where is your faith, he asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Who is this? And, and I want to say that is where faith is made. Or that is where faith is broken and how you answer that. Because that's what faith is. Faith isn't the adherence to a religious ritual or even tradition. Because religious ritual, tradition, that will only take you so far when you are really in the middle of a storm. That won't get you that far. But every person has this opportunity in front of them to look at the person of Jesus and say, who is this? Who is this? That is where real faith, real trust is developed or where it is broken. Who is Jesus is the most important question that you can answer. And the disciples here get this answer. Who is Jesus? He is your safe passage. He is the creator of all things. And he is powerful. And I do want to say this, you know, it was amazing that Julio, we didn't even talk, but Julio kind of was giving part of my sermon uh, during offering. Um, Because I just want to say this. What you can't find in the life of Jesus, you should not attribute to God. In other words, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember this, but when Hurricane Katrina happened, there was a prominent Christian who declared that Hurricane Katrina happened because uh, New Orleans is a debaucherous place. And God's judgment was on uh, New Orleans. 
we do not see Jesus causing storms, physical storms that is, in people's lives. We see him calming storms, right? So when I look at Jesus, I'm looking at an accurate depiction of what the Father is like. Does God today cause storms to bring about judgment in people's lives? I don't believe so. Number one, because Jesus was adequately judged for all people on the cross. So God isn't up there trying to dole out judgment to people to really give them what they're due. No, hell is coming, and everybody has a choice until then. But secondly, when I look in the life of Jesus, I see that he is the creator, and he is powerful, and he's chosen to calm storms and to save life rather than destroy it. Now, that little side deal over. I just want to be honest. I can't think of a time when I don't want to see an increase of faith in my life. So when I approached this passage, I was like, yeah, I, where is my faith? You know, I can think of a thousand different, you know, examples within my own life of where I don't trust God, where I don't have faith. And so I had this question, like, how do you get faith? Because faith, I've even said it enough times probably today, it's one of those words, it's like, it's like love, where the more you talk about it, the more you forget what it actually means the more you forget what it actually really feels like to have it. So here's where I want to go today. I want to ask the question, how do we grow in trust? How do we, if we can just boil faith down to trust, how do we grow in trust? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this in Romans uh, chapter 10. Next slide. Here's a little bit of a key. It says this. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's all, let's all read this together. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes, how does faith come in your life? It comes from experiencing the faithful one. Because did you catch it? Faith doesn't come by the word of God. You're like, wait, what? Well, it says, faith comes by hearing, Hearing comes by the word of God, okay? So how do you hear the word of God? Where do you get faith? Hearing. It's actually, there's a slight difference here, and I want to bring this out. If it was about the words that God spoke, God's word, then anybody who read the Bible would automatically have faith because it would, if it came by the word, then you would just read the Bible and you'd have faith. But there's many people who've read the Bible and they didn't have faith. Why? They didn't hear. They didn't hear. If it was by the words that were spoken, then hearing wouldn't be here. It would just say, so then faith comes by the word of God. But it doesn't say that. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In a sense, what God says to you is almost beside the point. Now, hear me. What God says to you is very important. It's authoritative over your life. So just can you give me just a slight bit? Of, I can already feel it in the room. Just hang on. In a sense, what God says is less important than the act of actually encountering his voice. It is, it is the feeling of breath on your ear in his whisper that produces the faith. Not necessarily what he says. How many of you guys understand what he says is going to also fuel your faith, but where does faith originally come from? It comes from encountering a God whose voice is active in your life. It's less important necessarily in the beginning of what he's saying. It's more important. Where does faith come from? It comes from the actual encounter. It comes from seeing him. 
It's his presence. How do you get faith? You go, I just really need to have faith. I used to have faith. I missed the days when I had faith. I'm going to try and get faith. No, it won't work. You must see him. Eugene Peterson, he had this, I think, incredible connection in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, which if you're in ministry or a pastor, you have to read this book. It's so, so good. I'm rereading it. But he said this. He said, in infancy, so he's actually talking about when we're babies. In infancy, our eyes gradually focus. The face becomes our first vista. By means of the parental face, we know ourselves as ourselves and in its expressions, learn our place in the world. In the face, we acquire trust. And we grow up to what we are looking to. The feelings and responses that begin in the cradle develop in adulthood into deliberate ventures into trust and worship. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty good. You might want to take a picture of that one. There's so much there. How do you grow in faith? How do you grow in trust? You experience the face of the faithful one. And that is why the question of Luke is so important. Who is this? You know, I've, I've met with many, many people through the years of being a pastor who have deconstructed their faith. They have deconstructed their trust. And in almost every single instance, the conversation I'm having is not about who Jesus is, but who the church was or wasn't. I don't care. You're not going to stand before God and he's going to say, what did you think about my church? He's going to say, did I know you? Did we have a face-to-face -face connection? Did you hear me? It's one of the scariest passages. You know that passage? Many will come to Jesus on the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? They're the charismatics, by the way. Did we not do all of these things in your name? And he's gonna say, I didn't know you. We, many of us, you want to grow in trust? You want to go in faith? Grow in faith? You have to go back to being a baby so that your first vista and your only vista becomes his face. Because it's in the cradle. No matter how old you are, it is back in the cradle where real faith is developed. It has very little to do with what you know. Very little to do with how many podcasts you listen to. It has very little to do with whatever Christian content you enjoy. It has everything to do with What's the vista of your gaze? Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Chad. <laughs> I don't ever want you to move away. I want you to stay here with me forever, Chad. <laughs> I need you, buddy. <laughs> Luke knows something, and, and by the way, the disciples now know something, that anybody who's walked through pain and gotten to the other side also know that there is no answer in pain that is better than presence. There is no answer in loss that is better than presence. My, I lost my uh, grandfather, this is a little over a year ago, and it just rocked me. I think I talked about it a lot, actually, at the time. 
uh, because it just was like the first time where I saw like a whole side um, or a whole part of my family just didn't exist anymore. And it was jarring. Many of you who are older than me, you've seen this happen probably even with your own parents. This this was my grandparents. And it just like shook me to my core. I'd find myself waking up at like two in the morning. I'd go out into the living room and I'd just cry for like two hours. And just like, I just felt it. And I didn't need my wife to come out there and to say like, you know, there's gonna be resurrection someday. And you know, obviously truth matters. All that I needed at that moment was I just wanted to sense him. Are you just with me, God? Are you just with me? That's enough. That's enough. There is no answer in a storm that is better than presence because here's the reason why. Anything less than presence, when used to solve a problem or a storm in your life, will create a dependency on something that we were not intended to be dependent on. It's called codependency. And this leads me to address something a little bit more sensitive, especially in a church like ours. I wanna ask you this question. What do you do when you feel like God has let you down in a storm or in a trial? Like you thought that you trusted him and you believed him and you prophesied and, and, you, and you spoke to the mountain that was in front of you. You will be moved and you came for prayer and still the storm rages on. And in a church like ours, it's sensitive because we sing songs like, you're never going to let me down. It's a good song. (laughs) I've sung that. I have sung, you're never going to let me down. I've declared, you're never going to let me down. Man, I've sung it. And I know this, I know all of this because I've been the person, maybe this was you today, I've been the person in the gathering of the bride of Christ when people are chanting it, you're never going to let me down. Faith seems to be rising, or at least at the very least, excitement is rising, and I'm just not feeling it. No matter what the preacher preaches, the worship leaders sing, no matter whether we go through all my favorite old liturgical moments, I'm getting more annoyed than filled. Because in the midst of these very happy people, I have felt let down by God. I trusted him. I waited for him. I leaned on his promises. And I still didn't see the deliverance, the help, the safety. So have you ever been there? What do you do when you're there? Look, there's even a couple things that I'm still sorting out in my life today where I feel like God has let me down. I'm still sorting it out. The most recent one, I I really hesitated to even share this story because it's that embarrassing. Uh, But I feel like this is going to maybe help you kind of understand what I'm saying, or at least this will illustrate it a bit. The most recent time I felt let down by God was the Asbury Revival. Do you guys remember the Asbury Revival just like six, seven months ago? It was awesome. I wanted that to happen here, not in Asbury. I wanted it here. So what happened when the Asbury Revival started is I put on a really happy face. I was like, that's so awesome. But inside I was like, yeah, I kind of planted a whole church with the hopes that we would be visited by the presence of God in such attraction that people from the nations would be drawn and the whole town would be shaped by the presence of God. I don't know, that was kind of my hope. And Asbury gets it, they're not even charismatics. And 
so I, this is embarrassing, I felt led, I felt personally offended. God, you told me to come here and plant this church. You told me to build a church around revival in the presence of God. You told me. Why is it not happening? And so I, I met with a friend of mine and I told this person how jealous I was. I got honest finally because I, I stopped being like, oh, it's so good for them and, and he still does it. I mean, I, st- I actually was happy that God still moves today and I think that it was evidence and it was on CNN and stuff. It's like, okay, that's awesome. Like, I actually was happy about it, but I, but I, was on, I got honest with somebody finally and I was just like, I'm super jealous. Like, I'm not flying to Asbury. God can come here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, jeez, I told you this is embarrassing. My wife is going to be like, you shouldn't have shared that. Uh, so anyways, I, I'm meeting with this person and I'm like, I paraded all of my reasons why I think God should have come and visited Newbert. I was like, I preached my guts out for four years. I prayed for it. I walked this town streets declaring the presence of God, draping over this valley like a tapestry over the hills. I said, he's going to come here. I prophesied. I wrote the prophecies down. I have a whole document that's like 25 pages long with prophecies from you guys. Some of your prophecies are really weird. I still wrote them down. (laughs) I built teams empowered people. I, 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 and that's where they stopped me. You know what they told me? In a very, uh, I think a really kind way, they said to me, you know, you sound like a child who wants ice cream before dinner. (laughs) They're like, you sound like a a three-year-old that's like, Daddy, I was so good today, and I cleaned my room, and I read when you told me to read, and I just want ice cream now. But you can't understand as a child the intentions and complexity of a father who is running a universe, much of which you're not even aware of. So you don't know. And in that moment, I repented. I changed my mind. I was like, wow, yeah. I don't control God. And there's no sermon and there's no song and there's no amount of good leadership that you can provide to a place that guarantees the renewing presence of God like that. There are times where you need to just be okay with living in the unknown while maintaining a simple longing for God. I just want your presence. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why I didn't get that thing that I wanted. I don't know why I went through the pain that I, that I went through. I don't know. I may never know, but I just simply want you. So when I feel like God has let me down, I have some questions that I've begun to ask myself, and, and here they are. Hopefully these will be helpful to you. The first question is this, am I entitled is this just an entitled spirit that like, I feel entitled to the activity of God. I feel entitled to uh, things that maybe I'm actually not entitled to. Secondly, is, is this part of the broken nature of our world? In other words, am I blaming God for serpent stuff? Sometimes we blame God for stuff and it's like, he didn't do that. 
That's the enemy. Or I ask this question, you know, is this just beyond my understanding? I'm never going to quite wrap my head around why this hasn't gone away or why this problem persists in my life. Or is this a timing problem for me? And am I wanting everything to happen on my timeline? Because I think so often it's like, we read that passage in Romans chapter eight, like God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called to according to his purposes. And that working of good has an eternal timeline. It doesn't have just your mortal timeline. So you're like, man, maybe, maybe I'm trying to force all of heaven into this life when I need to recognize that we are living in a now and not yet. In other words, the fullness of the kingdom is coming when the, when the man on the white horse arrives when Jesus comes and defeats his enemies. And often I find that all four of these if, are, are colluding in my life to keep me blaming God for things he didn't do. And I can only conclude that my inability to understand the grand machinations of the universe and the will of God has left me feeling let down by God, but that I may not actually be let down by God. I just want to say this. What feels like God letting you down could be, in fact, the gods letting you down. The idols in your life letting you down. And so some of you are going through pain and you're going through suffering, and I want to say there is a gift of disillusionment that I pray you receive. What is disillusionment? It's this. It's what you thought would have, been, would have helped you weather that storm. The money, the comfort, the person was just shown in your life to be fraudulent. It's not enough. And you get disillusioned. You go, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And it didn't help me the way that I thought it would help me. And they didn't fix me the way that I thought that they would fix me. So for me, in that situation, my prayers, my ability, even my charismatic theology let me down just like they should. Because I shouldn't have been leaning on them more than I was leaning on him. So what felt to me like God letting me down was actually my idols letting me down. And then with a great sigh of relief, I was free to trust God again rather than my ability techniques or whatever else it is. And that is real faith. That is real trust. See, I want you to understand that real trust doesn't come with a plausibility structure. Do you know what I mean? A plausibility structure is like, you know, you come to God and you're like, I'll trust you, but I need to see the benefit. Real trust doesn't require all of the benefits and rewards being explained up front before trust is given. Real trust says, okay, I'll trust you, even before I know how this is going to work out. Because here's the deal, real trust isn't... Real trust isn't in the calming of the storm and the effect that the getting rid of that storm is going to have on your life, but it is, real trust is in the person. Who is this? Who is this? And if you can mature to that place of trust, if you can get there, then you will sleep in any storm and you will begin to even calm storms around you. I want to end by giving you a juxtaposition of sorts between two types of Christians. Two types of Christians. 
One of my favorite uh, poets is Christian Wyman. Is there anybody in here who's ever read Christian Wyman before? Okay, I appreciate that. Anybody else, Christian Wyman? I would, I would recommend you read Christian Wyman, especially as evangelicals. He's uh, not an evangelical, just super profound and deep. Uh, he walked through deep pain. He had um, leukemia and wrote a whole book about it. He's just a really amazing guy. And uh, I, I just want to say I've been really impacted by his writing and that I really respect him. So what I'm about to say is going to sound kind of negative, but I don't mean it that way at all. He lamented that in, um, in one of his writings, he lamented that in liberal Protestant churches that he attends, he can't seem to find the same devotion or intensity that he found as a child in the conservative churches that he used to go to. And here's, here's what he kind of reminisced on, or here, here, here's what he thought, was thinking about, uh, thinking about those churches he used to go to. He said this, they are treating it as if their whole lives were at stake. And the churches I go to, liberal Protestant churches, it seems pretty casual. It lacks that intensity. And I miss that intensity. I wish there were some way of harnessing the intensity I felt in my childhood in more sophisticated ways. Real trust will always lead to risk. But here, risk was sacrificed. Trust was sacrificed on the altar of sophistication. Now juxtapose that with this. There was a man named Anthony Ehrlich. He was a freed West Indies slave who visited the Moravians. Some of you guys know about the Moravians. uh, On Zinzendorf's property in the 1700s. This freed slave comes and he begs Zinzendorf, who's leading this kind of uh, revival, essentially, among the Moravians, to send missionaries to his home in the West Indies. Two men from the Moravians, Leonard Dober, I want to say their names because I want these men to be honored for the rest of their life, for the you know, rest of time. Leonard Dober and David A. Nishman, who had just been captured by the grace of Christ, believing God for his promises to use their lives and bring about salvations. They heard this desire and they sold themselves into slavery for the sake of reaching slaves in the West Indies. They got a hold of the truth that there is no slave or free in Christ, and so they had no fear of any storm. In fact, they drove straight into it. Their faith looked like trust, and their trust looked like risk. And my question is, which example moves you? Why? Because one looks like the cross of Christ and the other looks like self-preservation and respectability and sophistication. I believe that God is raising a people with a sense of urgency and faith to carry the next renewal of this land. And great trust is required. Great dependency on God is required. Living for this, living not for this life, but for the next is required. I'll end with this story. Yesterday I was uh, sitting at a local coffee shop. I wonder if you can guess which one. And because um, there's one. <laughs> uh, I was looking out uh, the window of this coffee shop. And I was, um, there had been some kind of an event taking place. And I was just noticing the various cultural symbols of decay. 
And what would have probably um, depressed me in the past or like gotten to me a little bit, all of a sudden I was filled with hope and vision. And I really felt like God say to me, you were born for this storm. You were born for this time. And I didn't create Saints Hill to lose. You were born for victory. You were given the same power that Jesus had to speak with authority and to act. The storms that we face culturally, physically, relationally, you were made for. You, you, you do not lack anything when facing them. And I do not believe that God designed you for anything less than victory and peace in the storm. So I don't know what you're facing, whether it's personal, whether it's cultural. But I want to say this, that those who trust the most are the most at peace in life's storms. Let me, let, let's stand. I want to pray over you. God, I pray for courage. Once again, you know, even last week we were praying this. I pray for courage over this church. And I ask that courage would be uh, what is born out of trust. That as we trust you more, as we depend on you more, as we say, God, it's only the vista of your face, nothing less. God, I ask that you would pour out your courage. You would give us like lion hearts. That's just what I see God doing in you guys right now is he's giving you the heart of a lion so that the things that used to knock you off balance, the things that used to toss you back and forth, the way that used to, to, to swamp your boat, you would, you would just like, they would be nothing to you. They would be like little, uh, like, like, like the tide just coming in and out over your feet, that you would have the heart of a lion. The things that used to get under your skin and make you crawl, the, 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 the things that would drive you crazy, that you would not be bugged anymore. You would have peace in the storm because you have who's in your boat. You'd have peace in the storm because whose face you've seen. God, pour out courage. Give us lion hearts to face what's in front of us. And God, I pray for those who are going through difficulty and personal pain, whether it's physical or emotional. God, I ask that you would meet them today. I ask for healings today, God. You've been healing this week. There's been healings that I've heard about already this week. I ask for more today, God. I ask for physical healings, evidence of your kingdom, the things that you, you said, God, that these signs, the things that you did would follow those who believe. And we're those who, we have, we have a little bit of faith here today, God. So we, we believe, help our unbelief. We wanna see more. In Jesus' name, In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.